0: Hare Krishna Maharaj, humble obeisances. Thank you very much for joining
1: today. Nice to be with you again. Thank you for joining. (laughs) Whoops. (laughs)
0: Yes, Maharaj. So, Maharaj, I thought today we could discuss on your book on cow care and how you have used the. uh, For you, cow care is the starting point for a very serious uh, deliberation on. Very broad concepts like dharma, yoga, and bhakti, culminating in bhakti. So maybe you could start with how what inspired you to write this book.
1: Sure. Um, first, let me do a little promotion, if you like.
0: Um, now you can share your screen. This is
1: the book. <laughs> okay.
0: Oh, excellent. I'll just make you full screen. Okay.
1: And... Now care. Okay. And uh, you may notice on this top, it says open access. Um, Open access means that it's available for anyone and everyone to download digital copy uh, free of charge. Uh, So we can provide the link. Yes, Uh, you'll do that different. Anyone can legally download the book. Um, This is then uh, counted uh, by the publisher, Palgrave Macmillan. Uh, This is part of a series, Animal Ethics series of uh, the publisher, Palgrave Macmillan. And uh, they register each download, which means that we keep, Informed how many how many people download the book, so up to now it is over forty one thousand uh downloads since That's it was huge. published in the beginning of last year. yeah, uh-huh. the number has slowed in the beginning it was uh, the numbers were going up rather quickly, and now it's slowed, but still uh how i came to write for I, academic
0: sorry for a academic book forty one for academic publishers book forty one k is a significant download
1: um it? yeah it's pretty good <laughs> some books <Okay>. some <laughs> academic books uh you can be happy if you sell three hundred copies
0: <laughs> yes my right
1: yeah
0: so i think this this is a very good strategy you had mentioned to me that you know you got some sponsorship for the book and that's how they gave the free access so that's a, in one sense in today's world getting a physical copy is not that easy in different parts of the world yeah it becomes expensive yeah so this free access sounds like a very good good strategy that can be used in general
1: yes. whenever possible
0: do all publishers allow this maharaj or it's only for
1: some publishers um I think gradually more and more publishers are making an option of open access uh, i I mm. haven't researched it, but uh, they seem to recognize more and more that it's it's good for everyone involved um, it's uh, it's not inexpensive um, but um, I was encouraged by devotees, by friends, uh, to do an a fundraising, you know, crowdfunding sort of thing. And it was successful, mm. so it was possible to do. Um, That's fine. Thank you. Yeah, so uh, to explain, oh, I wanted to also say that just a few days ago, we have sent 80 eight hardbound copies we have shipped uh, from Germany to India and um, this was sponsored by one devotee of the Chopati Yatra um, oh. and we are going to be sending these as complementary uh, co- copies to various. Academic institutions to particular individuals, professors and uh, various scholars. Okay, so that's wonderful.
0: That's it means it's also physical copies. We reach we reach physical libraries that also has its yeah, own reach.
1: Yes, that's the idea. So, how I came to write the book? I was invited to do so. Uh, by the editor of this book series, whom I know uh, quite well. Uh, he is um, professor, retired professor, Andrew Lindsay. Uh, he is the head of, the director of the Oxford Center for Animal Ethics. And that's something also one can find on the internet Um, I became involved with them uh, giving presentations on Hinduism and animal ethics over some years. And uh, he asked me more than once to write on Hinduism and animal ethics. And I think it was the third time he asked me, he said, I really want you to write this book because you are a practitioner. And when he said okay. that, uh, as they say in America, the nickel dropped. <laughs> uh, I okay. I thought, okay, I should write this book, and how to how to approach the subject. I felt what would be of most interest for readers and for myself. Personally, I felt uh, inspired to, to investigate the subject was to focus on cows. So focus. Professor Lindsay immediately agreed, and so I got to work. Now, I should say that I'm not an expert on cows. I, I had to kind of start from scratch uh, doing the research. Um, but again, I was so far,
0: just going a step, sorry just if you don't mind if you just go a step back so it's interesting that he asked you saying that you are you you are a practitioner was a strength for you, yeah for many people, I had heard that in the academia if if there is you're a pra- practitioner, then there is some amount of some amount of i don't know suspicion or skepticism that you will be simply trying to tout the party line and
1: yeah could be uh, a disqualification. That creates some suspicion.
0: Yeah, Yeah. so is it because of your track record of what your past publications and teachings are, your interaction with them? How did being a practitioner become a strength over here?
1: Uh, I would say first point is that uh, Professor Lindsay is himself um, a religious person. He is a, um, a, a, um, he is not a priest, he is a vicar. Of uh, the um, okay. the Anglican Church, uh, and it's okay. interesting, I would say, because you know we usually think of uh, Christianity as not caring much about animals and uh, vegetarianism and so on, but precisely because of that he has been he has written several books uh, on this topic, arguing vigorously the need to understand christianity in a in a deeper way uh with respect to this matter so he is a religious oh. person and uh for him being religious is not a problem at all <laughs>
0: oh okay
1: so i would he, say that was the main point
0: and he's he's associated with he's so one thing is to be invited. It's So he's associated with the publisher or he's associated with the university which is doing this project and then later you found a publisher?
1: No. Um, he is the editor, uh, the chief editor of a series of books that is published.
0: Okay. series editor, okay.
1: Yeah, he's a series editor. This publisher publishes several different series. Uh, this is one series called the Animal Ethics Series. And he is the editor. Mm. He is one of two editors of that series. Uh, and so okay. he he is, um, this is part of his job is to find uh, new authors to add to his series. And so it works mm. like that. Okay. And it was also interesting, uh, this is an academic press, which means that there's peer review of the manuscript, actually two times. First, there's a peer review of the book proposal, uh, which I received, and uh, the response I got from the anonymous peer reviewer was very positive, and at the same time uh, gave uh I don't know, two, three, or four points that they felt I should uh, attend to, or um, which maybe wasn't in my initial proposal, something. And then, when the manuscript is finished, you submit to the publisher, and then it goes through a second peer review. Now they have the full uh, manuscript. But in my case, Actually, didn't go through second peer review. It simply went to uh, the editor in chief of the series, namely Professor Lindsay, and he looked through it, and then he just gave his green light. He said, "This is fine. <laughs> just just publish it." <laughs> and so the the production <laughs> manager, or what you know, the the other. Editors, they said, okay, he says it's good, so we take it.
0: Oh, so that that also speaks to the caliber of your book then, that it could go that fast forward. Yes, Maharaj.
1: Well, so, I think it speaks for Krishna giving his blessings.
0: Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. And that's your humility of looking at it also. I've read the book and it's amazingly insightful. So you. Uh, maybe you can talk about yeah. Thank you. So maybe you could. Uh, so one of the many among the many things that I appreciate about the book is that you give a historical and scriptural overview of cow care. You talk right from the Rigveda about how cows have a significant position in the broad Vedic tradition, mm-hmm. and then especially in the modern times, mm, how it, it has become. Uh, cow care has become quite, we could say, embroiled in many things other than cow care now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you could put it that way. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) So uh, it is, uh, even though especially, although I lived in India, I had no idea about all the uh, complex, you could say, political forces that had shaped the vision of cow care. Yeah. So... If you, 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 how how would you like to go ahead? i would like to cow care itself is an important topic but the way you have analyzed it is it is from a broad ethical very broad perspective mm-hmm. so maybe we could start with how cow care is perceived it's quite a polarizing perspective for devotees cow signifies uh, cows are dear to krishna and their protection is the the highest importance and yeah. many People, many Hindus share that that concern. Yes. But even in India, there are there is the you could say the political left, especially,
1: mm. which is
0: aggressively against cow care. Yes. And uh, in India, in fact, especially in South India, there are various places where there are beef eating festivals. Yes. Where they specifically <laughs> just do, defy, they do that. Yeah. And uh, they consider that as their inalienable right. And also, in the West, uh, sometimes the Hindu religion or the broad Vedic path. One of the ways of dismissing or uh, deriding it is: these people worship cows and drink uh, cow. They don't even use the word cow urine; they use the cow pee, the pee word. So <laughs> it's a very, in one sense, a volatile subject. Mm-hmm. So how did it, how did it, uh, how did this become so volatile? Maybe you could. Trace that history,
1: mm, okay. A little bit, br- briefly. Yes. Um, yeah. I think we have to see it all in the context of uh, the development of uh, a, an identity, a national identity, in late nineteenth-century India. Um, okay. Leading up, ultimately to. Independence from the British, but also continuing because I think uh, Srivatsa Goswami, uh, the very um, very nice um, scholar devotee of the Radharaman community, when I interviewed him, he uh, we were talking about this, and he said he said actually. Uh, the colonial period did not end in 1947. Rather, it started in 1947.
0: <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, that is a stro- I have heard that colonial mentality has continued to some extent, but started in 1947. That's a strong statement. What do yeah. you mean
1: by that? Well, he likes to say things shocking statements. Uh, I think his I think his point is that the the influence of the West really got moving after nineteen forty seven. The cultural influence, maybe the political uh, presence of the British, ended, but the the cultural influence really got into motion, you know, not just in India, but globally. Okay, that's mm. another topic. but um, the the cow protection movement, as it came to be kind of officially known, begins in the late 19th century, in the 1880s. Uh, and it begins somewhat ironically, I would say particularly, and I discuss this in the book uh, with Dayanand Saraswati writing a pamphlet on this subject, and what I mean by ironic is that he gets it printed. So we have mass production of a message, and this mass production gets... produced and distributed through technology, which came from the West. Mm. Um, okay. And then he also, in that pamphlet, discusses about um, cow protection organizations, institutions, and how will these be organized? It turns out they'll be organized very much in a Western style of organization,
0: mm-hmm. this seems to be a broad characteristic of the emergence of modern Hinduism. That mm-hmm. almost all Hindu leaders did, to some extent, adopt Western styles of organization. Yes. And even Bhaktisaram Thakur did that to some extent. Yes. And okay, so even Cow Protection happened. So, Maharaj, <laughs> just to uh, 1880s. Yeah. Means. Was it that, uh, I I don't think by 1880s they would organize slaughterhouses at that time, I don't know when they came about. So why did 1880s this concern rise? Was it that, and we know in the chaitanya Charitamrath, for example, that the British would eat, not the, the, the Muslims would, Paro, in one sense, in the modern word, he roasts Chant Kazi for the killing of cows who are considered to be mothers, who are like mothers. So, the Muslim invaders did have the habit of eating cow flesh. So why did this concern rise at this particular time?
1: I would say it's it's a, a combination of causes. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, but it could be argued, and I'm not a historian who delved into the details here, but I suspect okay. um, that the real moving force is not so much uh, the Muslim eating of cow flesh, but much more the British. And one reason for that is simply that the British were slaughtering uh, vastly larger numbers of cows than Muslims at the time because they were feeding their soldiers with, uh, with, uh, with beef. And uh, mm-hmm. I think there was some increasing awareness of this, but, but uh, as it happens, and I think this is also at least partly to blame on the British, uh, the British were benefiting from dividing the Hindus and the Muslims um, in various ways. Mm-hmm. And so to pitch the Hindus against the Muslims was uh, in the interest of the British, as I understand, in many respects.
0: Yeah, divide and rule.
1: Divide and rule. Their
0: policies, yeah.
1: Yeah. And so in any case, um, whatever the details of conflict came, it did come to open conflict over the issue of cow killing Uh, on the surface, at least, between Hindus and Muslims uh, in one town. As I remember, it was in Punjab. And by this time, also, um, I think we have to be aware that uh, the distribution of information, uh, the media was becoming more accessible, so that what happens in Punjab soon becomes also known in other parts of India. Mm. At the same time, um, in what was the year, 1888, uh, the Indian National Congress is established, 1885, I don't remember. Sometime in the 80s, uh, the... Indian National Congress is established and mm. and there's a lot of maneuvering going on amongst Indians Hindu Muslim and so on for presence political presence and one thing mm. that they that the Hindus are looking for is something to unite them un- <coughs> under the banner of what since rather recently is being called Hinduism. Hmm. Uh, the term Hindu we see already in Chaitanya Charitamrita, um, and it's always in contrast to Yavana uh, and so on. Uh, they don't use the word muslim however hinduism this idea starts manifesting first in the 19th century so then okay. uh, this becomes so then the cow protection of the cow uh, the cow becomes a symbol of uh, of hinduism which seems it's it seems like cow becomes like a ready-made symbol, uh, which points to an ancient past uh, of what is understood uh, by these people as cow protection. And uh, it it kind of opens up because of the potential for uh for articulating a unity for India, not just Hindu but India, and this was uh, this was Gandhi's perspective. He wanted to say, you know, the cow is is for everyone, and protection of the cow is for everyone. It has nothing to do with Hindu and Muslim. Uh, he he saw also in Uh, cow protection, a kind of ideal that could be pursued by everyone and bring everyone together. So from early on, uh, politics, early on meaning in the independence movement of India, cow protection uh, is taking, yeah, a rather front row seat, we can say.
0: Okay, front row seat. So was it at that time also opposed by, say, Muslims or British, or at that time it was not such a... It, you said it started as a unifying issue. So yeah. did it become a polarizing issue at that time, or or how did it become uh, polarizing?
1: Well, the polarization... Yeah, polarization was there um, from the 1880s. There were, there were riots uh, happening, as I said, in Punjab. Uh, was one of the earliest. It's been a while now since I've been reading all this material, so it's hard for it's me hard. to give details. Okay. And, so, Haraj, you yeah. know,
0: I'm just directing some questions. Yes. And you could take it whichever way, you know, you could answer some questions in brief, and you could answer some questions in detail, based on how <laughs> you would like to take this podcast. Sure. Because <laughs> now I, I want to make sure that, you know, the we do justice to the book, and uh, in in this is this broad subjects which are discussed in the book, so so from what and what I what I see it now is that you know even if we talk about say the financial benefits of cow care, still it it's there and leave alone the ethical aspects. Still, there's a blinkered view by which uh, it's all seen as a as a. Uh, just a prop for foisting one's religious values on others. Mm. So this antipathy, which, uh, which in one sense in your book, you avoid that. So you go in. maybe we could track a little bit backward that from what I read is that you see cow and cow care is like the representation of the harmony between the it, the human, divine and natural worlds that's is that how you put it in? yeah could you explain that a little bit is that a that's a very universalist and up, appealing way of seeing otherwise cow care seems to be like a typical maybe like a Hindu in, idiosyncrasy for some people right so <laughs>
1: yeah this yeah. is this is the the broad approach we can say and and this is explained by uh, champions of I like to call it cow care more than cow protection because uh, the the idea of cow protection is right from the start from the get-go uh, it's it's adversarial you know we have to protect the cow against um, these persons and whatever. Um, but Isn't the Sanskrit care, word
0: itself? Sorry, sorry, sorry to interrupt. That's a good difference. But in the Sanskrit word in the Bhagavad Gita is go raksha. Yeah. So "raksha" does it mean protection or "raksha" it can does, itself mean uh, mean care also?
1: No, it 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 generally means protection. Uh, so I'm not deriving okay. this from the from from the Gita specifically. Okay. Uh, okay. Right. Rather, I'm leading into. Western uh, broadly speaking Western uh, contemporary Western ethics one particular uh, stream of ethics which has developed quite recently uh, from the from the 1980s uh, called the ethics of care <laughs> okay. uh, so that's one connection that I'm trying to make, and maybe we can talk about that a bit later. Um, Hmm. But um, let's see, now I lost the thread. Uh, You were asking
0: You asking about how it's calculated the harmony of the divine, human, and natural worlds. Yeah,
1: Yeah, so we can think of this sort of graphically as a triangle um, where we put we put uh, divinity on, on a, a point on the top and then we have uh, two positions on the bottom, the human, and uh, we can say, broadly speaking, the natural world, not just animals, mm. uh, certainly not just cows. And we might want to then imagine in the, uh, a circle in the center of this triangle in which we locate uh, yajna, the practice of ritual. What is usually translated as sacrifice, but the word sacrifice has a lot of uh, negative connotations for a lot of people. But yajna really? is...
0: Sorry, sorry. sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt. How does sacrifice have a negative connotation? It's like killing animals or in what sense? Or is it like you had to give up something dear? Or
1: So many ways. I think that's another topic. <laughs>
0: okay, okay, fine. I didn't know the negative connotation of the word. Okay, fine. Yeah.
1: So, go ahead, so if we put, yag- let's just use the word yagna, yes. and say, if we put that in the center, then, then that takes us uh, to much of what, uh, Lord Shri Krishna is speaking about in Bhagavad Gita, especially in the third chapter of the Gita, uh, about uh, the, the cycle of sacrifice, uh, mm. in which all that is, all that is beneficial uh, for human beings is achieved through sacrifice. Saha yagya prajashrishva purovacha yeah. prajapati. prajapati anena prasavishya dvam duk kamaduk. Mm. Yeah. kamaduk. uh is, uh, you can say, wish fulfilling cow. And yes. how, is, how is sacrifice performed? It's generally considered uh, from the ritual texts that an essential item is ghee or grita in Sanskrit. Mm. And what is ghee? It is uh, purified, uh, clarified, sorry, clarified butter. And what is butter? Uh, it is churned from milk, from cow's milk. And so cows mm. are very much linked to uh to the sacrifice sacrifice and also to those who perform the sacrifice, the Brahmins. Okay. And therefore it's said that the cows and the Brahmins are to be protected um, because we need both of their services uh, to maintain a harmonious relationship uh, with nature and uh, with the higher powers who are overseeing nature. And I'm using that term higher powers uh, to keep it slightly on the on the side that may make some people less nervous <laughs> than if we just say God. <laughs> yes. <laughs>
0: So I, I think I just lost you for maybe 30 seconds. So oh. the, I got the point that the cows uh, and the yagya they connect us with the higher powers. And The cows are connected with yajna and with those who perform yajna, brahmanas. Mm. And then the next thing I heard was the higher powers. So... Um.
1: Right so Sorry. it's hard for me to back up.
0: <laughs> okay no I mean fine. I think we are, I think you are, you already connected the three worlds. So there's a yajnas are performed yeah. to satisfy the higher powers. Yes. So in that there is the divine world. Yeah. And then the performers of the yajna are the human world we could say.
1: Yeah, the and divine the- world reciprocates and how do they recipro- how does it reciprocate uh, by by bestowing uh, all things necessary from nature um, mm. to human beings, and therefore there is a well-being for nature and for for human beings. So, like that, and that's all described in the th- uh, chapter three chapter. of Bhagavad Gita. Yes. So. Um, <laughs> So that, that triangle I was speaking of, I think this can be one way of understanding how in particular, cows are uh, are taken as, uh, as valuable. That's, um, I think, and there's another way to understand, which I appreciate um, jumping ahead in historical terms, I mentioned Gandhi before, Mahatma Gandhi, uh, Mm. Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi. Um, I discuss him also in the book uh, as part of this movement to popularize cow protection in the modern time. And one point he makes, which I find, uh, which I appreciate, is that he says... It is through the practice of cow protection. It is through caring for cows that human beings establish a right understanding of their relation to all other beings, all other uh, animals. Because naturally we ask, why cows? Why? Why not goats? Why not um, any? You know, why not tigers? or pigeons, or whatever. Mm. And he's saying that through the practice of caring for, protecting and caring for cows, uh, through that process, uh, which means it's a way of life, uh, when you have cows and you're committing yourself to caring for them for their entire natural life, Uh, that's going to determine a lot about your own life, your own lifestyle, as we say nowadays. Um, And also, uh, by your interaction with the cows, you'll develop a certain understanding which is opening you to appreciate the rest of nature. One thing that I learned uh, from interviewing persons who take care of cows, something something I heard repeatedly was that you come to appreciate the individuality of the cows. Each cow has a personality. Each cow has different ways of interacting with the other cows, of interacting with um, with their carers and so on. They have, they are persons. Hmm. So through that activity, that not just activity, but way of life, I would say, uh, I think it's a, a valuable insight that Gandhi gave, that through, through cow care in particular, we um, open ourselves to a, a proper way of relating with the rest of uh, the rest of nature, uh, the rest of God's creation, one might like to say, like that.
0: Mm. Okay, so in one sense, cow care is not just cow care; it creates some foundational values in the heart
1: mm. by
0: which we start appreciating the rest of nature.
1: So, yes, yeah. and that is of- much better than I could.
0: <laughs> no, not, no, no. I was just trying to understand because you actually anticipated the question that I was going to raise. raise because, in one sense, some people, when they come to India, even in Gauradhaniko village, mm-hmm. we don't just uh, uh, we have cow care, we also have other animals. Yes. The animal shelter. <laughs> so, no, that in one sense demonstrates that while we care, it's almost like uh, in today's world, if you care for something because your religion tells you to do, then that is a disqualification almost. That means that doesn't prove that proves that you to your religious beliefs. So you will do whatever your religion tells you to do. So in that sense, uh, what is actually good sometimes is seen as negative if it is done because of a religious motive. Right. A, yeah.
1: And 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 unfortunately, I would say. Um, in the uh, more neophyte levels of any religious tradition, where one is, one becomes preoccupied with uh, the rules. I'm going. I follow the rules. One is prone to ignoring the purpose behind the rules,
0: mm, okay.
1: and therefore one is prone to not understanding how to more deeply apply the rules. You so,
0: quite are saying that there is validity to the criticism also that people mm. make care for the cows because of uh, because of some religious uh, beliefs but and it is true that sometimes other animals yeah. can get completely neglected and even starved and,
1: and specifically like and specifically in India we see lots of concern about cows and pra- practically no concern whatsoever about um, buffaloes, uh, water buffaloes. And in fact, farmers will take water buffaloes for their milk, which they sell, um, specifically because there is no Negative consequences for them, as they understand, uh, to letting the the buffalo be killed, be slaughtered when it's no longer giving milk. So instead of having cows, they'll prefer oh. buffaloes because it's you know there's there's no, what's the word? Uh, it's okay to let. Um buffaloes oh, okay. I can sell my buffaloes, and nobody's going to criticize me
0: that's so in one sense the injunction for cow care may actually end up with pe- pe- people not wanting to do anything with cows at all so in one yeah from utilitarian perspective, investment in water buffaloes might seem a more well, we could say viable investment. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's quite complicated.
1: It is. So, uh, and, uh, yes, you know, it, speaking of that, maybe it's jumping a bit, but uh, the situation in India, and we discuss this also in the book, has become so um, paradoxical in this regard. There's high respect for cows on the one side, and on the other side... Um, India has the largest dairy industry in the world Uh, since the 1970s, since it was organized uh, in such a way that all the small um, uh, cow owners could sort of channel all of their milk into these huge processing plants like Amul, and so on. Each of the parts of India have their own uh, company names. Uh, Which means that those cows, when they are giving less milk or no longer giving milk, they will be sent to the slaughter for slaughter. And then the, the leather industry in India... And uh, the cow and buffalo meat industry are very substantial. All of this meat gets exported. Um, Practically, not all of it, but a lot of it gets exported. And so there's, that's, you know, there's a whole economy going on uh, mm-hmm. in that respect. And there's a government institute in Chennai, uh, which uh, promotes uh, the leather industry it's a government institute and they're promoting uh, leather products they're encouraging uh, they're they're producing they're creating different leather products and getting people to buy them and so on and so forth
0: um. So from the government's perspective, this is if it's getting revenue, why bother about any other considerations? So, so if well, I understand right,
1: yes, I'll, but yeah. it's complicated. Speaking of the government, um, I don't know if it's proper, but I can, I will say you can um, censor later. But I met um, about two years ago, I was able to meet uh, Shimati Manika Gandhi in her office in Delhi. Uh, She is a central government minister, and she she has been working for animal protection for many years. And uh, in our meeting, which went longer than was scheduled for, she was very kind to um, give me more time than she had initially given. Uh, practically the whole time she was just complaining about the government that she works for. Oh, really? Saying that, you know, on the one side, um, so many things are being said uh, in favor of animal protection, but on the other side, uh, there's the ministry, you know, this ministry and that ministry, which is promoting um you know the leather industry and and the the milk industry and so and the the beef and so uh she was complaining a lot about that oh
0: so even in political circles there is division oh, oh yes. how this to win okay
1: oh yeah and yes. and specifically i mentioned this is all the leather and most of the meat is being exported, and that means it's bringing in, uh, it's bringing in foreign exchange. Hmm. And you know who can who can say no to foreign exchange in India today?
0: <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. Oh God. So, so this perspective of what you—I mean—going back to a little broader philosophical perspective yes i like so, to get
1: back to the broader yeah. perspective <laughs>
0: yes. so you talk about this uh, how cow care is is a beginning of harmony with the natural world and then this uh, this this perspective it is very very appealing to current uh, current western concerns about animal ethics.
1: Hmm.
0: So has this been presented? I mean, how has the response been to this? Is, how did you address the challenge of, is this, an, this is not just a religious concern, this broader perspective you presented? And then how, what has been the response overall to it?
1: Um, truth be told, I haven't gotten a whole lot of uh, explicit response. Uh, so far, I have to the book, uh, there have been two, um, two book reviews, academic book reviews that I know of. Uh, they've both been positive. One of the re- reviews uh, was written by the chief editor of an academic journal called Animals, which is not it's not pitched this this journal is is for i don't know it's multidisciplinary apparently and it's it's pitched for all kinds of people who are dealing with especially the animal you know animal industries uh and he he gave a review of the book which was How to say. It was positive, and at the same time, he said it was like, This is a very interesting perspective to consider. Um, You know, maybe we can consider to uh, change (laughs) our economic models in such a way that this uh, could be actually followed. It was kind of like that. He was very generous, and at the same time, saying, Well, You know that's that's one perspective. Uh, The the other review was uh, was by a Vaishnava practitioner scholar, so it was quite positive. But beyond that, I have to say I haven't, um, you know, received um, direct response from people. Sometimes these things take time, for, and of course just writing one book is not in itself uh, necessarily going to change very much. But there's what we call the trickle-down effect. One hopes that um, some minds will be inspired, uh, persons who will uh, give such ideas further uh, to a wider audience, perhaps a more you know in popular writing and so on uh, but Ooh. it's it's um, so i'm I'm putting in my my two cents worth in the form of this book and uh, hoping that it will get some positive response. It's um, it's not all that I'm doing within our own society is gone i'm also making um, some effort i've been um, asked to oversee the ministry for cow protection and agriculture for uh, for europe and uh, with a group of devotees in europe we are working on a plan, plans. Uh, for implementing a standard where we have considerably more cows that we are protecting uh, so that we can take uh, all of the milk that we offer to Krishna um, from protected cows. Now, but this is taking, you may think, taking us away from what you're asking which is what about a broader reach of this a non-religious reach and what i want to say is that those of us who are working on this feel that this will be essential for a wider public to take us seriously uh, to see that we are in fact walking our talk as it is now in the West, especially, um, for the most part, we only have really token cow protection. Mm. And so, and it's, it's, not, it's not really on the map of a public awareness of what Hare Krishnas do. The public awareness is, oh, they sing on the streets. Uh, they are vegetarian. And um, and maybe they have very beautiful worship in their temples. Mainly it's Indians who are aware of that. Um, and it's, I don't know what more is there in the public image. So one of our aims, I would say, uh, is to make more of a public awareness that Yes, we have an alternative that we practice and it's an alternative uh, to the vegan idea that we should not take any dairy products whatsoever, we should not have, uh, we should not care for cows and so on.
0: Okay. Okay. So it's one thing to demonstrate ethical that we have a sound philosophical worldview for animal protection and physical cow protection, but if we don't demonstrate it, then it'll just be right just words I think you know i this da, David Heberman has written the book of Yamuna yes, and he also talks about something similar that that the yamuna protection movement, which actually many of the followers were were people motivated by religious considerations. Mm. And the same for Ganga. That's, the action is done on the ground. That's when the, the religious worldview also starts take, being taken seriously. Right. Yes, Maharaj. Yeah. Uh, also, if, if we can talk from broader perspectives, you also talk about how cow care relates with uh, dharma, dharma, Yoga and Bhakti. So, yeah. would you like to talk about that? Or Are there some other subjects you want to develop in this direction first before we go there?
1: We can we can go into Dharma, Yoga and Bhakti and we'll see. Maybe we circle around back to something.
0: <laughs> sure. <about
1: it. laughs> so in, in the, I think it's chapter 5 of my book, um, yeah, it's called Cow Care and the Ethics of Care. Because uh, this book is within the animal ethics book series. I wanted mm. to, uh, I wanted to show a connection that I'm interested not only in cows, or we are Hindus are not only interested in cows, but in animal care in general, and for this. Uh, we need to talk about uh, the philosophical side of ethics. And for this, I'm introducing terminology and practices and culture uh, which are very foreign uh, to Westerners. And I want to try to see how we can bring the two discourses together. Okay. Okay. So I begin, I talk about dharma, and then I talk about yoga, and then I talk about bhakti, and how these are related. And I conclude with a discussion of what I mentioned before, the ethics of care. Because what I see is that bhakti leads quite naturally into um, and works very easily into discussion about the ethics of care. Um, but okay. if we go back and start with Dharma, what is Dharma? Well, we might start with uh, the, the Sanskrit word and go to its verbal root, uh, which is dril. Uh, in in uh, Roman transliteration, it would be D H R with a dot under the R. <laughs> Retroflex mm. R. Which is <laughs> <Dr. laughs> hard okay. hard to pronounce. I'm wondering if I should close this curtain so that I don't look so strange on the mic. on the
0: Oh, I think you might also be feeling
1: hot. No, no, it's it's quite pleasant here actually. Oh, okay. um, but if you give me a couple of seconds, I can do sure. this. Okay, that's better. Mm. Yes. Yeah, so, so this verbal root. Can mean something like to sustain. Uh, And of course, the word sustainability is a buzzword today uh, in relation to environmental concerns and ecology. Uh, It can mean to sustain, uh, to hold, simply to hold. and and related ideas. So in different dimensions, uh, if we start from the broadest dimension, Dharma is about cosmic order, if you like. And this would mm-hmm. bring us back to uh, what we talked about before, this triangle uh, with divinity and uh, humanity and nature. I also speak about bovinity in my book. It's
0: uh, yeah, it's a beautiful word, bovinity. It, slightly,
1: slightly uh, coined word, although it's actually in the dictionary. <laughs> um, oh, okay, it's there already in the dictionary. It's in the dictionary. I... It's used in a very different way than I use it, but it's there.
0: <laughs> oh, okay.
1: I'm, yeah. So and... if we think about cosmic order. Hmm. Mm. And we think about bovinity, uh, if you like, jumping back to the subject of cows, then Dharma is very much concerned with care for cows, protection of cows, connected with the sacrifice uh, and and there and thereby keeping the cosmic order okay Now Dharma is also about. Um, we may broadly speak of ethics in the sense of obligation. Uh, the question, that, uh, a common or a major question in any discussion of ethics is, what do I owe?
0: What do I owe? Okay.
1: And to whom? Um And the Dharma tradition from the perspective of of Dharma Shastra, one scholar has pointed out the really foundational uh, principle in Dharma Shastra is the idea of debt, the idea that we are born with indebted, we're indebted to our parents, to the ancestors, to the rishis, to the... Um, to the uh, celestial beings, Uh, we are indebted uh, to human beings, we are indebted to living beings, Buddha, Buddha-Rinna. Okay. And so what what I call in this uh, chapter, that aspect of Dharma, settled duty, and that which we understand as, as soon as I'm born, I have obligations. That's one aspect of dharma. Uh, and it connects to this broader sense of uh, order. That I, as a human being, have certain obligations. And those obligations extend beyond simply uh, relations to other human beings. Okay, That there is moral significance to animals. There is moral... They have a moral position. Uh, they belong to... Another way of it's put in modern uh, ethics discussion is they belong to the moral community. Moral community, okay. Um, and then... Well... I don't know how far to go in this, but with dharma, uh, we talk about another aspect of dharma, which is dharma as deliberation on right action. And this we get especially in the Mahabharata, because you can say the core question of the Mahabharata is what should be done? What is dharma? Yes, yes. And you get endless, endless stories of uh, what seem like di- d- dilemmas, what should be done. Well, <laughs> it's complicated.
0: <laughs> mm, that's true. In, in my sense, that, that is the driving question of the Bhagavad Gita also. It's
1: a driving question Arjuna of the Gita. And what does Krishna okay. say at the end? He says, Sarvadharma Parityaja. <laughs> <Okay.
0: laughs> ekam
1: yeah. Sharanang Raja. Uh, Give up all your so-called dharma and just surrender unto me. (laughs) Hmm. So that's another aspect of dharma.
0: So just to repeat, the two aspects are, one is the aspect of duty, what we owe to others. Settled
1: settled duty. In other words, it's something that I'm not even going to question, I just, I understand it as, or I accept it from the get-go, for whatever reason, as my duty. Um, And that may translate into all kinds of things. We can take it as varna duty, ashrama duty, and swadharma may be included, Uh, but there may be other things that we consider. But the sort of core of that from the tradition is that we have five debts, which need yes. to be paid. Okay. That's kind of That's, where it all goes back to.
0: So that is one aspect of dharma. And the other, you said, is about...
1: When, the... when we're not sure what we're supposed to do, Then, then we deliberate on dharma, or we deliberate our... on right action. So I'm suggesting so... that deliberation... Is also part of Dharma.
0: Okay, ethical deliberation.
1: Ethical I think at the end of the Bhagavad
0: Gita, Krishna says, Arjuna talks about it as this is dharmam samvadam avayo. Mm. Yeah, Sanjay, says, this is a, this conversation of Dharma between these two great souls I have heard and I am thrilled by hearing about it.
1: Yes, so. and Krishna tells Arjuna, now deliberate, isn't it? He says, now, yes. now you decide um, what to do.
0: Mm oh okay so dharma in that sense is a nice it's a broad thing very clear do doing what is clear to us mm. and when it is not clear then contemplating to clarify both are in the se- both are within the semantic ambit of dharma
1: right and this okay. clarification uh, may involve uh, very cl- complex factors And the example that I'm I'm giving is from the Manu Samhita discussion in chapter 5 about what is edible and what is not edible. Uh, Because if you look closely at that chapter, it's actually rather confusing. It seems like Manu is saying one thing and then it seems like he's saying the opposite. (laughs)
0: <laughs> okay.
1: Uh and I discussed that in an earlier chapter in more detail. Um but I bring it up again here and refer to uh the commentary of one Mimamsaka um person, Medatiti from the tenth century, in it's which quite a
0: celebrated person with respect yes. to interpretations, yeah.
1: Yeah, so he gives an interpretation of Manu talking about eating, what to eat and what not to eat. Um, Maybe I can read that short statement, shall I? Shall I read that briefly, what he says? Should I try to share the screen, Maharaj,
0: so the audience can also see? Which page is this, roughly? Uh, Page 173.
1: Okay.
0: Chapter 5 or which?
1: Yes, chapter 5. Okay. Yes, there it is. Okay. You can move it slightly down. Oops. Can you? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So this is an explanation this is a kind of citing not direct quote uh, by Donald Davis who explains this killing and eating meat in specified contexts is legally permissible according to Manu but the law does not stop there instead a fully hermeneutic understanding of of law demonstrates that the law calls on us to abstain from the actions for the great rewards, quote-unquote, that abstention brings. Both are the law, dharma. But the dharma that produces higher reward is to be preferred over that of mere acceptability. And then I go on to explain that higher reward, you know, this sounds very uh, kind of self-centered, that by giving higher reward, Dharma Shastra um, urges us to think more deeply and to understand ultimately that actually it's a higher moral position uh, to refrain from eating meat. It's not Mm. just it's not just better for me to not eat meat, um, you know, whether physically or morally, but it's just better, (laughs) it's a higher position morally. Yeah, so dharma as deliberation, and then we have a third aspect of dharma, and that is dharma as cultivation of virtue.
0: Just one minute before we, so based on the Medadithi quote, the point which you are making is that uh, Manu's passage is illustrating this ethical reflection or ethical deliberation that where where the principle is that, y- yes, if uh, there's allowance for meat eating, but uh, the fact that there is a higher reward and also the higher reward is holistic. It's not just like we will individually get, but the whole, whole nature and whole of creation would be existence would be benefited by that. Is that the point you're trying to make through this?
1: Yeah. So that's a specific example of uh, deliberation uh, on dharma as deliberation, where uh, we find what seems to be a confusion, uh, possibly two different messages, in Shastra, because Mm -hmm. someone may say, well, I just follow Shastra, it's very simple. Dharma is very simple, I just follow Shastra. And so Mm -hmm. Dharma is only about settled duty, uh, period. And what I want to say is, well, it's not quite that simple. (laughs) Dharma is more than that because if you want to understand Dharma more deeply, to do the right thing um, for the good. When we speak of ethics, we're speaking generally of two principles. Uh, what should I do, which is what is right for me to do? And then what should I do to bring about good? Okay. To bring about good. And this, this is the Western terminology. Um. Yeah. So anyway, deliberation is part of dharma. That's all I want to say. And this is a okay. nice example of it in the context of animal uh, ethics, because what is the whole problem? The problem is that human beings think uh, it's—I mean, the vast majority of people think it's completely normal and proper and uh, and even religious. Uh, to eat meat uh, mm. and um, so we're pointing out that just maybe that 's not the case. yes, it can be proper if you do it the right way and that 's what Manu also has suggested here. he talks about that in chapter five of the um, of the okay. Manu sanghita. Um okay but then we go on to dharma as cultivation of virtue because another major category a category yeah. of ethical discourse in western discourse on ethics is called virtue ethics, virtue
0: ethics. yes
1: and virtue ethics is the idea that if I am virtuous, I will act rightly, using the terms right and good. I will act naturally in a right way if I am virtuous. Mm. And That's then, of course, the moment. question, and then the question comes, so yeah. what constitutes virtue? <laughs> and, yes. and you have a 2,500-year-old discussion in Western philosophy, what is virtue? Um, and I simply want to say here, yes, we also have within the Dharma tradition discussion about what is virtue.
0: Oh, this is amazing. So the way I'd heard about these three broad schools of thought in ethics, and virtue ethics is one, I think other is consequentialist ethics. Yes. And then what brings about good utilitarian consequentialists. And other is, is it uh, Kantian category, moral imperatives, that these are the things we should do. Uh, that's, that's
1: only one type of. Um, that's Kantian ethics, which I guess would go under the major third category, which is deontology.
0: Deontology, yes. Hmm. So basically, you have presented Dharma as, as connecting with all three uh, schools of ethics, isn't it? Because yeah. if Dharma is set, settled duty, means that will become deontological. Yeah, it's utilitarian. Then it's then it is that it's like ethical. It's more consequentialism. To what will do good. Yeah, consequentialism, and then virtue ethics is. Yeah, and they're all concerned
1: also, with what is right in order to get what is good. That is common to all, all the three uh, types of, you know, broad categories of, uh, of ethical okay. discourse. But yes.
0: What is right for doing what is good? Is that what you said?
1: No. What is to be done? Okay. What is to be done is the right. One should do the right in okay. order to bring about the good. Okay. Makes sense. Yes. And... um Maybe as a footnote, but I mention in the book, um, I refer to one contemporary scholar. He's uh, Shyam Ranganathan. He is teaching in, I'm not sure if it's University of Toronto, but he's in Canada. And he's written quite extensively on uh, Indian ethics. And he points out that bhakti is a category in itself. Beyond the three of deontology, consequentialism, and virtue ethics, he says bhakti brings us into a whole new category. Why? Because, he argues, the good, uh, sorry, the.
0: Recording stopped.
1: Recording stopped.
0: Recording in progress.
1: Oh, we just came back. I went off, it (laughs) seems a minute. (laughs) Yeah.
0: I, the last thing I heard was that you have mentioned in your book. That was the last thing I heard.
1: Oh, um, yes, I refer to Shyam Ranganathan, a professor in Canada uh, who uh, teaches um, Indian philosophy. He talks about ethics and he identifies bhakti as a fourth category beyond the three categories of deontology, consequentialism, and virtue ethics.
0: Oh, okay.
1: He says bhakti is a different category. And why? Why is that? He says because in bhakti, um, the right is the good. (laughs) To act in bhakti is itself the good. So it's not that unlike in the other categories you're doing something hopefully right to bring about something else which is good.
0: Oh. So this is something like There's in our a, tradition we said that means and the ends are the same in bhakti. Right. Okay. The right is the good.
1: Okay. Anyway, um that's it's, that's a, a point which I found useful for this discussion. Uh, so we're talking about dharma, yoga, and bhakti and how these relate to animal ethics. Yes. So, so I you move. mentioned about
0: dharma. You, you just mentioned about... I think you mentioned about dharma dil- elaborately. Yeah. So would you like to talk about yoga and bhakti yes. now?
1: Yes. So then going on to yoga now. Yoga, I focus mainly on classical yoga as presented in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, uh, where we have the famous Ashtanga Yoga system as it becomes referred to later. Uh, he Patanjali doesn't refer to it that way. Uh, but in Ashtanga Yoga, as is well known, the first two uh, Angas are Yama and Niyama, each of which he breaks down into five subcategories. And this, by the way, is uh, not original to Patanjali. It's found also in the Jain tradition. Okay. uh, And I believe also in Buddhist tradition. Uh, But the point here is that the very first of the five principles of yama where yama means, broadly speaking, restraint, self restraint. The first principle is ahimsa, non we usually translate as non violence. And the commentators on the Yoga Sutras, they all agree that uh, this ahimsa principle is essential, it is foundational, it is the root from which uh, the whole process of yoga can develop. Okay, And uh, they emphasize it quite strongly uh, that uh, this is to be practiced by everyone. It is not, uh, in this sense, if we connect again back to dharma, it's samanya dharma. It's for everyone. It's not just for persons of a particular varna or whatever. Uh, Do the
0: Yoga Sutra commentators define... What non-violences do they include? Vegetarianism, or, or how do they? Because Kshatriya warfare is also there. But how hmm. do they? Do they define it, or do they leave it? They don't. They don't go into that too much.
1: Um, Patanjali doesn't go into it, except, okay. um, except in one sense. And I have this quote also. If you like to share it, uh, this is on page one seven nine.
0: Okay.
1: And uh, this is Yoga Sutra two, uh, Chapter two, Sutra thirty four. Okay. So next up. Uh, to give a slight introduction to this, in Yoga Sutra uh, 32, I think it is, no, 33, he says, and you can read it there at the very top, whoops, upon being harassed by negative thoughts, one should cultivate counteracting thoughts. Uh, vitarka Bhadane Pratipaksha is the sutra. And then immediately after that, he's giving a, we would say, a practical example how to do that. And this is one of my, these two are kind of favorites of mine. He says, negative thoughts are violence, himsa, etc. They may be personally performed performed on one's behalf by another, or authorized by oneself. They may be triggered by greed, anger, or delusion, and they may be slight, moderate, or extreme in intensity. One should cultivate counteracting thoughts, namely, that the end results of negative thoughts, our ongoing suffering and ignorance. In other words, he's giving a practical mental exercise because uh, the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali are more than anything else about controlling the mind, Mm -hmm. restraining the mind, yogas chitta vritti nirodha. Um, So then... Here he's giving a very practical advice of how to, um, how to reflect when you notice you're having some negative thought. And he gives as an example, himsa. Himsa means violence. So he says, uh, you have some thought of being violent, one way or another. And in the Jain tradition, they categorize violence um, and nonviolence uh, in, in, in a radical way. They, in one of their texts, they have, I think, it's three, two hundred and thirty-two or two hundred thirty-six different types of violence to be avoided.
0: <laughs> oh, okay.
1: Um, so it's saying, oh, you have some thought of violence. And then he elaborates, you know, whether it's um, something that you would do yourself, or you would, uh, someone else would do, perhaps on your behalf, or you would allow someone else to do, um, or um, if it's something which is triggered um, by loba uh, krodha or moha, loba krodha moha purvakā. Um, or even if it's just a slight kind of a violence, or it's a stronger, or it's a very strong violence. In any case, um, just think how, what the consequences of that are. Just think of uh, the dukkha, the misery, dukkha agyana. I forget the term, Uh, but just think of the ongoing suffering that will come from that, and thus you can overcome that thought.
0: (laughs) Okay, so so it is a very broad explanation of ahimsa. It's
1: very broad. It's not
0: just killing animals. It's almost like negative, violent thoughts, destructive thoughts. It's huge. Yeah. So,
1: ahimsa is at that level then. But then also going more specific to animals, um, the 15th century commentator Vignanabikshu, commenta- co- commenting on the Yoga Sutras, uh, says that even scripturally condoned violence, as in the killing of animals in ritual sacrifice. Uh, as we see in the Manu Smriti, is herewith rejected. Oh, okay. And uh, I go on to give his reasoning. I quote Edwin Bryant uh, from his uh, very good book on the Yoga Sutras for that. Should I read this? You decide, Maharaj, How do you want to take it? <laughs> I, I,
0: I don't. I want to respect your time. Also, how much time do you have? And if you have some other topics to discuss, uh, yeah.
1: Based on well, I do want to get at some point uh, to my uh, six affirmations for cow protection uh, yes, toward ma'am. the end of the book. So okay. yeah, we can read since you've. Whoops, you oh, just sorry. took it away.
0: <laughs> sorry, sorry. Yeah. Please go ahead.
1: So, okay. Ultimately, all creatures are parts of Ishvara God, uh, explains Vikshu, like sons to the father and sparks to the fire. Therefore, violence against others is violence against God. And then he quotes the Bhagavad Gita: "Envious people act hatefully toward me, Krishna." In their own and in others' bodies. I continually hurl such cruel, hateful people, the lowest of mankind, into samsaric existence, into only the impure wombs of demons. So, this is Vijayanabhikshu, quote, um, commenting on the, um, on the Yoga Sutras, specifically on this topic of ahimsa. So uh, So, that's getting more specific. And also it's connecting to Ishvara Pranidhan, which the Yoga Sutra uh, refers to and which has been a subject of a lot of debate uh, to what extent was um, Patanjali a theist Uh, is his yoga, theistic yoga, and so on. But uh, he does seem to speak very positively of the practice of Ishvara Pranidhan, or meditation, uh, worship of the Lord, as a practice um, foundational to the practice of yoga. And this then leads into our third topic, which is bhakti and the transition okay. i make for this connection of sorry, yoga sorry, to bhakti
0: sorry, if i am just uh, so in one sense you are saying that dharma naturally i'm just trying to connect this with our topic of cow care so when you talk about dharma as a settled duty or as a virtue and as a uh, as a deliberation mm-hmm. so through all these like by the Manusmriti code dharma does enjoin and similarly, yoga also enjoins that through its fundamental dictate of uh, Ahimsa, as well as the fact that Ishwar, Pranidhan, because if we are to surrender to Ishwar, then naturally we take care of parts of Ishwar. So in that sense, you are saying that these two foundational aspects of the Vedic teachings or Hindu Dharma, whatever word you use, mm. they, they, they strongly support animal ethics. Is that the point you're making through this?
1: Yes. Um... Okay. Supporting animal ethics in um, in two ways which we can take as specifically negative as opposed to the positive practice of bhakti, okay. and here we can make a distinction if we go back to these terms cow protection, cow care. so mm. we can say cow protection is the negative. Um, you know, stop doing something, prevent something from happening. Whereas cow care is something positive, and that's going to lead us to to get to the punchline, if you like, into go seva, the idea of serving cows. And why would we want to serve cows? Because cows are dear to Krishna how how do we know that cows are dear to krishna we know from shastra specifically from excuse me shrimad bhagavatam which uh, our acharyas identify as uh, the decisive scripture uh, for understanding absolute truth um mm. So that's going the fast route. And in between, I talk about the story of um, Bharata, who is practicing yoga. And in his practice of yoga, he becomes distracted. And how does he become distracted? By saving a baby deer. And becoming so attached to the deer that he, after death, as the yogi, takes birth in his next life as a deer who remembers his previous life as a yogi and thus prepares himself for the next life as Jada Bharata, (laughs) Mm. who ultimately becomes the teacher of a king, and what is it he teaches him, by his example, by Jada Bharata's example, he teaches him uh, to care for all living beings, even ants.
0: Mm. That's fascinating, isn't it, that although he could have, he said, an animal deviated me from my previous life, he doesn't. They hold the animal responsible, but he's taking care of the smallest of animals. Yes. So, yes, well, I
1: and I also suggest, and it's this could be argued against, perhaps, but I, I find it personally meaningful. Although we generally say Janda Bharata fell down. Uh, because of his meditation on the deer, and then he, therefore he had to take birth as a deer. I want to say that this is by higher arrangement for him to experience the life of a deer as part of his education as a yogi. Okay. And uh, ultimately leading him into... Uh, a position of bhakti, uh, a mentality which has genuine concern, genuine care uh, for uh, the animal kingdom, as we say.
0: Mm. So, so the in bhakti, the genuine care comes because of the same point which was mentioned in Ishwar Pranidhan, more or less, but at a deeper level that all living beings are parts of the Lord whom we want to love and care for?
1: Yes. And if we go back to uh, Vijnanabikshu, he says violence against others is violence against God. And so we may understand that's okay, that's not a good thing, violence against God. Uh, But... The sort of full growth of that sense is that, why is that so? It is because the Lord is present in all beings.
0: Oh, okay. And it is bhakti that gives us the vision of that?
1: And it's bhakti that gives us the vision of that. And that takes us back to um, my sort of key verse from Bhagavad Gita, Pandita Samadarshina. 518. Yes. Yes, please. Pandita Samadarshina. Uh, the Pandit is Samadar is a Samadarshin, is one who sees equally all living beings.
0: Yeah. Mm. So so in one sense so you are saying Pandita Samadarshina is a bhakti principle? Because one is not just because one is seeing them all souls but one is saying the presence of the divinity within, of Krishna within every living being.
1: That's yes, why. yes. Oh. And, and I want to also say that this is essential uh, for a comprehensive animal ethics. Uh, modern Western ethics in general, including animal ethics... Is sort of studiously avoiding theism or any theistic uh, invocation uh, of of higher order and divine uh, demi- divine divine uh, will and so on. It's trying to reason its way to to right action, and I want to say that to. The reasoning process requires to understand, to comprehend our own identity as spiritual beings. And that comprehension is only possible uh, by comprehending uh, the existence of the higher self, atma, paramatma. Uh, so it's the whole, so in a sense, the whole package is, is necessary. Yeah.
0: So in a sense, you could say that animal ethics will be a natural expression of a bhakti worldview, natural natural dimension of a bhakti worldview.
1: Yes. Yes, it naturally grows out of a bhakti worldview. Um, yeah.
0: Yes, Maharaj. And uh, so... So, in one sense, uh, dha- what dharma and yoga enjoin, going back to the earlier point of the right is the what is that? The right is the good? No, the what is the
1: what is the that? no that's bhakti. Yeah, the the right, right is the good. The right leads to the good. That is, you can say dharma and yoga.
0: Okay, but in bhakti, right is the good. So, in one sense, the the.
1: I'm not sure. I should say, I think Shama, uh, I think Ranganathan would argue that the right is the good. Um, that's also the case in proper yoga practice, but he's, for me, he's not completely clear on that. Okay.
0: Yeah, so overall, this is, uh, you know, in a way, the way you have expanded the topic of cow care, so... It's fascinating. I hope that the book gets read widely and not just read widely, but understood widely also. (laughs) Otherwise, everything gets, every aspect, especially of religion today, gets put in its own own corner and viewed through ideological, particular ideological lens, which can be quite sectarian or polarizing.
1: Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, Perhaps we could end uh, since we did bring up the subject of how cow ta- care in India specifically is so tied into politics um, I try to address this <clears throat> excuse me in uh, the sixth chapter In a section called Six Affirmations on the Dharma of Cowcare. And um, I won't read all of this, but I need to explain the context, which is a political context. Okay. Uh, I'm drawing from the empirical research of a social psychologist at um, New York University. I don't know if he is still there, but John Haidt, H-A-I-D-T, Jonathan Haidt, uh, has written quite extensively on the subject. Uh, He identifies initially five and then six what he calls foundational moral principles of oh. political life.
0: Oh, he's the person who's trying to reconcile conservatives and liberals, the righteous mind and other books. Exactly. He, yeah, yeah. Quite well known actually.
1: I don't know if he's reconciling, but he's showing how people tend to one side or the other in terms of their presupposition their moral presuppositions.
0: Yeah, okay, reconciling is a uh, is a Overstatement, at least he makes the two mindsets intelligible to each other also. Why do people think in this way?
1: Right, yeah. Yeah. So these um, positions, Hmm. uh, these six positions, he divides in three, uh, sorry, in two categories of three uh, falling into the liberal and the conservative side. Um, so, and each of these foundational principles are expressed in a single word. And so we have, uh, first of all, care. OK. the opposite of which is harm. A second principle, moral principle, is fairness, the opposite of which is cheating; a third moral principle is loyalty, uh, the opposite of which is betrayal. Then authority, the opposite of which is subversion. Uh, Sanctity, the opposite of which is degradation. And a sixth one he adds later is liberty, uh, the opposite of which is oppression. What I've done is taken each of these six principles and suggested with what are called affirmations ways in which we can think about how cow care could actually be practiced and um, address all six of these principles rather than just one or two or three of them, which makes cow care political.
0: Okay, that's fascinating.
1: So the first of these, um, if I can briefly go through them, I I give sort of longer paragraphs for each one, so that's a bit much, but uh, the first is cow care and care. Is uh, this
0: in the book somewhere? Like, yeah, this would
1: be page two hundred and forty. Oh, it's way here? Yeah.
0: Cow care
1: and
0: care, yes. Uh on page two forty, yes. That's one this
1: the first of Hyde's six moral f- foundations is care; the opposite of which is harm. We frame our care practices now. I've worded it as it's in the present tense; it's already happening. That's what mm. an affirmation does. Okay. Mm. We frame our care practices in the general terms of ide- uh, sorry, I. Ide- General terms identified by uh, one scholar, Vasuda Dalmiya, in relation to bovines. More specifically, we have instituted a certification system. And I go on to explain this for, moderate, uh, for monitoring to ensure that all institutions and individuals who care for cows and wish to have the monitoring agency's seal of approval must follow minimum standards summarized in the five basic rules of the care system for lifelong care of animals. And that's in another section of the book. That's a bit earlier. Okay. Um, Now, yeah, I can elaborate on that. Uh, Just generally, I'll say I encountered uh, cases in India where there's a goshala. And the people who are taking care of the Goshala advertise themselves as champions of cow care. Mm. And then you go and you look at their cows and you see these cows are not being taken care of properly. They're not being fed enough. Um, Mm. Or, you know, or they're they're not being given any freedom uh, to move around. Some of them are so tied up, so tightly tied. I saw one case in our own institution. I was shocked. Uh, in one ISKCON institution in India, I won't mention where. I was shocked to see bulls tied so tightly um, by their nose. They could hardly move. That's that's not cow care. I don't know what it is. Mm. So I'm saying, let there be uh, a system of certification <laughs> uh, that sh- you know they're, they're, that shows that they're actually being cared for nicely. Then okay. the second is cow care and fairness. Um, and here I say that um, this uh, covers keeping strict conditions of respectful and caring treatment. Uh, So mm, this means especially giving sufficient milk to the calves of the cow. Mm, It means preferably milking the cows by hand. I say preferably because it's not absolutely the case. I think it can be argued uh, that machine milking is not necessarily a bad thing, but that's another subject. Um, okay. um, and then working of oxen, that this be done properly, uh, not that they're overworked, and so on. Um, mm-hmm. It also means dealing properly with those who are caring for the cows. Again, it's about fairness. Uh, Then the third principle is cow care and liberty. Um, And here I say, um, those who champion cow care should recognize the principle of um, liberty that everyone is free to determine the diet of their choice. Okay. In other words, we cannot make it a law that someone cannot eat meat. It has to be a matter of choice. If you want to um, be a member of certain communities within a country um, where... Uh, where eating meat is forbidden, that's fine. That would be also a choice. I choose to live in this uh, you know, particular community. Um, but we can't I I argue I would would argue that we cannot make it a law uh, to forbid eating meat as or a particular kind of meat as a national, as a national law. First of all, it's just going to be... It it will become like uh, prohibition was in America in the 1920s. It'll just... Everyone's going to break the law. Yes, that's true. Um, Then the fourth principle is cow care and loyalty. And here I speak about um, loyalty of those who care for cows... Uh, to particular communities in which uh, they, uh, they live. Uh, Dharma-based cow care culture is such that these loyalties are not energized by antagonism against other nations or communities. In other words, it's not that we care for cows and therefore Muslims are our enemies. It's... Okay, so here,
0: I mean, I'm just amazed at what you're doing, Maharaj. It's yeah. Sorry, let me stop the screen So you are basically providing a roadmap out of the politicalization of the issue.
1: Yeah, that's the beautiful.
0: idea. That's beautiful. So I think the liberty principle, if we couple the liberty principle with adequate education and education in a broader philosophical sense... And if people see that cow care is not just some like a religious idiosyncrasy or an edict, then a lot of people will choose. Yeah. And in some ways, you know, I had a friend who before is now a devotee, but before before being a devotee, he was a part of some beef eating festivals.
1: Oh, in South <laughs> India.
0: And he told me that he didn't even like beef.
1: Uh-oh. He
0: said it is just a part of the defiance. Yeah, yeah. If you tell me to do this, I'm going to do the opposite of that. Yeah. So, and it was, it was never, he was never told why to care for cows. It was just like a, yeah. this is some religious thing to do it. Right. Yes, Maharaj.
1: So I'll just briefly mention two more, the, the two final principles of um, which Haidt identifies as foundational uh, to mm. political life. Uh, The fifth one is authority, so cow care and authority. Authority in relation to cow care is specifically located first and foremost in persons with extensive experience in all aspects of cow care, including cow-based organic agriculture. Uh, Now, here I'm indirectly disqualifying myself, (laughs) because I don't have experience taking care of cows. Uh, But we have, you know, within our own society, many wonderful devotees who have lots of experience with cows. They are authorities on the subject of cow care. We can learn from them. Uh, But I also want to say, and I elaborate here, I believe it's in this section, about education. Uh, that education on cow care can be disseminated. And I think this is uh, where India as a nation could learn something, that if you want to promote cow protection, then why not institute programs for educating people how to take care of cows? And here is some, and this is something I have to express appreciation of, uh, Mainika Gandhi. About she compiled a quite large book, uh, a manual on um, how to take care of cows. She she brought together uh, writings from many different sources, very practical matters. Uh, her book was three or is three or four hundred pages long. Uh, with lots of illustrations. But she said herself, you know, this is in English, and who in India is going to read this? And I said, well, can't you get it translated into Indian languages? And she kind of threw up her hands and she said, I have no resources to do that. So why isn't the Indian government... Why aren't the state governments, and it's the state governments who can make laws against uh, the slaughter of cows, why aren't those same state governments not making, facilitating that her book gets translated and distributed throughout their states?
0: Hmm. So, in one sense, this is so important because even good-hearted people who want to take care of cows they may see it as economically unviable or they may see it as practically not possible. So if the education is provided, yeah.
1: And finally, the last one is cow care and sanctity. Mm. Those who care for cows regard them as bearers of sanctity and that they are unique in their ways of creaturely being in the world such that humans can care for them. For many Hindus, cows are special because they're regarded as especially dear to the supreme divinity Krishna. Therefore, they're practiced to give cows special attention. Such special attention is not at the cost of other creatures. And I mentioned Krishna has a pet buffalo, (laughs) (laughs) Rather, again, and this comes back to Gandhi's comment, Gandhi says, we can realize our duty toward the animal world and discharge it by wisely pursuing our dharma of service to the cow. Notice he says service to the cow. At the root of cow protection is the realization of our dharma towards the sub human species. Mm. So, a lot of people in India who show a lot of dedication to cow protection base their arguments largely on this last principle of sanctity. They say cows are sacred. Cows are our mother and Cows are protected in Shastra and so on. That's fine. But what about the other five principles? If we see sanctity as one principle of uh, moral foundation of political life and ignore the other five, there will continue to be antagonism there will continue to be this uh, uh, tension uh, this uh, fighting that goes on in the name of cow protection or against cow protection
0: that's amazing so this is uh, this is where I think uh, the philosophical understanding and Compiled with some, uh, uh, combined with some contemporary insights uh, can make the, make the tradition's wisdom relevant for people without polarization, Maharaj. It's
1: mm-hmm. wonderful. Uh, I'm just trying to open up the discussion with this book on, uh, on a different, on a bit deeper level than it's usually discussed. And then it's there for others to take it and develop it. Something which I don't do in this book is really get in, in, into the economics of cow care. I discuss it in a rather superficial way, um, but it's it's a very, it's a big challenge. And it will be different in different places. It'll be a different kind of challenge in India than it will be in Europe. Um, but there are major challenges on the economic side of it. Uh, And what I wanna say is let's start with the basics. Let's think deeply on the side of ethics. Uh, And if we get our ethics right and understand this is the right thing to do, okay, then we can start thinking about discussing, analyzing, researching, experimenting, um investigating how do we do it.
0: Okay, yes. It's it's in one sense it's uh once we have the sammanda, then we can have Abhideya. Once yes. we have that temperature <laughs> of something is to be done, yes. then how to go about doing it? Exactly, <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. exactly. <laughs>
0: yes, Maharaj. <laughs> yes. hmm. Maharaj, this has been amazing. I think a lot of devotees will be inspired by the way you are presented. Would you like to speak some concluding words or should I try to summarize and then you can conclude if you want to?
1: Well, you go ahead and summarize your expert summarization talent.
0: I don't know about that. I'll try today. So we discussed today, you could say, the topic of the universal principles of cow care and how they can be applied today. That was a broad topic which emerged eventually. So you you started about how you got the invitation to write this book and uh, your being as a practitioner was uh, in once sense not a disqualification, but a qualification. And then you decide to engage with the broader issues, how the issue has become political starting from the 1880s with the, with the Hindus and Muslims trying to maneuver for political space. At that time, cow became both a unifying symbol for Hindus. At the same time, like it became a polarizing symbol for others uh, in the broader World. So then, from political context of how it's become polarizing, we went back to how it could be seen as universal. So we went to the tradition and how cow care is will instill values by which we will care for the for the entire natural world. The triangle with with uh, divinity at the top and humanity and nature as below and in between is yagya. So yagya is meant to satisfy divinity and yagya involves cows, uh, a cow's g- milk made into ghee and yagya also involves the priests who perform it, the brahmins. So in that sense, sacrifice brings all the three together and then when sacrifices are performed, that uh, yagya is performed, then you prefer the word yagya to sacrifice and then then nature provides prosperity nature provides prosperity to us so so this harmony between the natural human and divine worlds that's that is what is is done through yajna and central to yajna is cows and then we discussed also about how this applies this unifying aspect can be seen in terms of Dharma, yoga, and bhakti also. So Dharma, we had an elaborate discussion of Dharma as settled duty, Dharma as ethical deliberation, Dharma as virtues. And then you brought in dialogue with other, with the contemporary ethics traditions or uh, the schools of thought and ethics. So deontology, virtue ethics, utilitarianism. So the idea is that within the Vedic context, quoting uh, from Manusmriti also about, about, uh, killing animals or not killing animals, that there is a dharmic, dharmic foundation to the protection of cows and animals in general. And yoga also starts with ahimsa, which has a very broad scope, but definitely it includes not killing animals. And Ishwar Pranidhan also has the idea of not killing animals because everybody is a part, every child of Ishwar. But Bhakti takes it further, that all living beings are, that Ishwar is present in all living beings. And therefore... And that vision, that understanding, as well as that realization can come through bhakti. And bhakti and bhakti involves that, that not, the, not just that the right leads to the good, but the right is the good. And then yeah, I think we came to the uh, how cow, we need to not just talk about it, but also demonstrate it. And you're also doing that through as the Minister for Cow Care and uh, Agriculture in Europe to try to establish some systems. And then you're given guidelines. Those six values, or six affirmations, based on the six principles uh, which Jonathan had has talked about. So cow care and loyalty. So cow care and actually uh, and 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 care in general. So you can have standards for authorization. So this, broadly by those six affirmations, you're, you're both universalizing cow care as well as taking showing a pathway out of any political bracketing that might happen. So if only one or two values are emphasized among those six, then political polarization may happen. But if the six values are embraced properly, then cow care can, uh, can actually lead to, uh, lead to a more harmonious existence. We can be more conscious of animal ethics and that, way that can be the contribution of the Vedic tradition to this contemporary field of animal ethics. Any concluding words, Maharaj?
1: <laughs> I, I'm always amazed at your summaries. So, right there. <laughs> uh, yes, maybe one or two very brief uh, sort of takeaways. For, um, for I think our audience is likely to be mainly practitioners of bhakti yoga, Vaishnavas, um, but mm. also for a wider audience, I want to encourage everyone to think carefully how one might change one's own diet in mm. such a way um, that uh, the, I, this practice of cow care can be uh, advanced. Now, this kind of goes back into a controversial thing amongst Vaishnavas, but just briefly, it is argued that it's all right to offer milk from non-protected cows to Krishna, because, although it's unfortunate that those cows will be slaughtered, uh, they will be eternally benefited because their milk has been offered to Krishna um, well maybe someone wants to argue that I don't want to argue against it but I want to ask this question which would you prefer would you prefer to, ha- to offer milk to Krishna which has been uh, which has come from protected cows and therefore you know uh, that that milk has been produced by cows who are peaceful because they know that they're not going to be slaughtered? Mm -hmm. Or would you say, well, it's really no difference to me. Milk is milk, and for Krishna, milk is the same also. Um, I'll give either milk to my children. Ultimately, milk is milk. Or would you prefer milk from protected cows? I think most, if not all, practicing Vaishnavas would say, well, of course, I would prefer to give uh, milk from protected cows. So if that's the answer, then I would say, why not do something to make that possible? Mm. Which leads to my second point, and that is, we all suffer in this world. We all have so many problems. And sometimes life is so difficult, we ask ourselves, how can I overcome this trouble? Um, And sometimes we may go to a senior Vaishnava to ask advice. And sometimes uh, younger devotees, other devotees, come to me as an older devotee with that question. Oh, I have this problem, I have that problem. Everything is going wrong. Uh, What should I do? Can you help me? And I have a simple answer for that, which I found to be very um, effective. My answer is, serve cows.
0: Really? Okay.
1: Devotees are taken back. Serve cows? I don't have any cows. <laughs> How am I supposed to serve cows? That's a detail. <laughs> uh, find some way to serve cows. It may be financial service by supporting cow protection. It may be by promoting cow protection on your... Uh, your social media there it turns out there's so many ways you can serve cows and what I've found is that those who uh, take my advice come back to me after some time and say wow this really works (laughs) I feel so much better (laughs) amazing okay so
0: almost like a mystical power of cow care you could say.
1: Yeah. So I think if more people would understand that cows by taking cares of care of cows we're actually benefiting ourselves in a very um substantial way, I think uh, we would see some um, some major changes. And then we could start seeing uh, the Christian consciousness movement, as one in which it's known, it's pu- it, it's a it's one of, it becomes one of our trademarks. Oh, those are the people who who protect cows, and from that point, people will start to ask, "So, what is it about this? Uh, why is it you're doing?" and so on, and then that starts having a wider effect throughout society. Okay. That's, I think... But it starts with us asking ourselves, what am I doing? hmm. This is quite
0: actionable for everyone in one sense. What am I I offering to Krishna? Yes, Maharaj. Thank you for sharing this. I think this is something which we apply at our own levels. Thank you.
1: Thank you, for, thank, you, thank you for this opportunity. And um, can we, when we post this, put into, uh, it, can we put the link uh, to the book for anyone to download so that you can make it available? Yes, ma'am, I definitely will
0: do that. Okay. We had done it in our earlier books also. Earlier podcasts also, we have already put it, but this podcast oh, will definitely okay. be sure that
1: <laughs> Yes.
0: Thank you, Maharaj. Humble obeisances. Look forward to having you again in the future soon. Likewise. Hare Krishna. Thank you, Maharaj.